0: and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au.
1: Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode.
0: Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Recently, we interviewed Baha on an episode that aired on July 3rd. During the interview, Baha stated that 150,000 Palestinians had been murdered by the State of Israel over the past 70 years. This was inaccurate. It is difficult to quantify the exact number of Palestinian deaths since the occupation of all of Palestine began, and from when Zionism first came to Palestine. To clarify how many Palestinian lives have been lost, the answer is simply too many. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. And we're joined from Canada by Mark Mohannad Ayash, PhD, a doctor, an academic and activist, a Palestinian born in Silwan, moved to Canada to a settler colonialist country like Australia when he was 14. He's joining us today to talk about his work. Good morning, Mark.
1: Good morning. It's a really a pleasure to be with you, Nasser.
0: The honor and pleasure is all ours, Mark. Thank you so very much. We're speaking today because you wrote an article and we'll put a link to this article in the podcast. It's called The Choices Between Israeli Colonialism Versus Decolonial Justice. What's so great about this article is it starts to talk, and our listeners are very aware of our beliefs on this show, that the future looks like a one democratic state with a separation of church and religion and freedom under law and equality for all, regardless of their faith. That this article actually speaks to that tomorrow and moves us away from this concept of one state and two state and that there could be any sort of restorative justice in that space. Do you take us through your article?
1: So perhaps I'll start by talking a little bit about what motivated me to write this article. Part of the motivation was to make the case that this isn't really about a pro-Israel versus a pro-Palestine issue, that it's not just about these identities per se, and that there is a much more meaningful choice Uh, that is presented before us when we're thinking about Palestine and Israel. And that is between a choice between a continuation of colonial modernity, a continuation of settler colonialism, a continuation of racist ideology and racist uh, worldviews versus a transformation into something new, something that would challenge this very long history of colonial modernity that has really brought enormous death and destruction to people all over uh, the, the world. And that is precisely what is at stake here. What the Palestinian struggle offers is an alternative to that world of colonial modernity, to that world that is Israeli settler colonialism. I really want to make sure that people understand that what is at stake here is not just the liberation of Palestine and Palestinians as a specific racial, ethnic, or national identity, but rather building a new world, building a decolonial world, that what drives Palestinian resistance is not really an opposition to Israel as a Jewish state, but it's an opposition to the idea of an exclusive uh, Jewish sovereignty over the historic land of Palestine, which is an idea that is part and parcel of colonial modernity. So that's why I want to stress that decolonial justice is what is presented as an alternative here, that decolonial justice underpins Palestinian resistance and calls
0: for Palestinian liberation. We're talking in an academic space because as you and I know, power doesn't let go of power willingly or nicely. I'm going to have to look at the situation with the University of Toronto and Dr. Azarova who our listeners might be aware was offered a a role there in the head of department in Canada's preeminent university when a Zionist Jewish judge wrote in and said allegedly gave some quiet discussions as to why Dr. Azarova shouldn't get the job and this is a person who's published widely in the the Palestine-Israel space and has published the truth and suddenly doesn't get the job. First a comment on that but then how if power can get to that point of Zionist power and influence Israel lobby can get to that point how do we get to a decolonialized Palestine excellent question so uh, first
1: of all I am on the record as in full support of the censure of the University of Toronto until this issue is addressed so I encourage everyone here uh, listening if there are uh, academics who have not signed on to the censure of the University of Toronto to I'm sorry I can't remember the exact uh, web address to go to but if you Google Google Censure University of Toronto. I'm sure their web address will come up. Go on that website, sign on to it, pledge that you will not give any talks at the University of Toronto. I certainly have many, many world-leading scholars have signed on to that and have said that they will not give any talks at the University of Toronto until it has addressed this issue in a satisfactory manner. And they are far from doing that. So the pressure needs to to, to be placed on them to do the right thing here. And that brings me to the crux of the answer, really, to your question, what to do about power, people power. That's the only answer that Palestinians have. We don't have a military, let alone a state-of-the-art military. We don't have economic sort of incentives uh, for people to ally with us. Uh, We don't have any huge diplomatic power. All we have is the justness of our cause. And the fact that people across this world understand that the Palestinian struggle is not divorced from their own struggles, whether it is against settler colonialism in places like Australia and Canada, or post-colonial authority, authoritarian regimes in places like Algeria and Egypt, or workers' struggles in across the world in, in, in Black Lives Matter. All of these struggles understand that what the Palestinian people face in their struggle is are the same set of obstacles that they face in their own struggle. And yes, the odds are heavily stacked against us uh, the power structures that we are going up against are quite strong it's not just the israeli lobby it's the israeli state power structure it's alliance with the american imperial power which is you know huge and tremendous and i understand why many people when they start to kind of put all of these power structures together they think, well, what's the point? <laughs> what, what chance do I have in, in standing up to them? But change never comes about by just hoping that it will come about. People power can make change, can force change to happen. And so I think that we need a very large collective effort by people in all of their own different locales in all of their different spaces to keep putting pressure on their governments, to keep putting pressure on companies to divest from, from Israel, to, to join the BDS call to, to sanction Israel, divest from Israel, boycott Israel, because pressure is the only way that these states will change their behavior. So we have many examples of that kind of collective grassroots. Pressure working. I mean, in, in some sense, the effort to create that censure of the University of Toronto is in some sense a grassroots effort. Yeah, it's led by professors, but professors aren't all that powerful within the landscape of the university. And it takes a lot of professors coming together, along with students and activists and, and community organizations to put pressure on university administrators to change their behavior. So it can work. You know, uh, we have, like I said, we have examples of Of how that can work. And yes, a lot of times it's frustrating. And yes, a lot of times you won't see the success of your efforts or how your efforts lead to change, but it doesn't mean that it's not doing anything. The only answer that I really have to that question of what to do with power is people power. That's all Palestinians have ever had. And it has worked in the sense that. We're still there. you know the main reason why Palestinians remain in Palestine is because of people power. So it's not without its successes, even though again, the cost is incredibly high and, and the process is incredibly painful. So I don't try to make to paint that as a picture of, of just a heroic resistance. I understand and, and know about the pain and the suffering involved. but what other options are there? Certainly sitting on the sideline is not one.
0: When we talk about the intersectionality and connectedness of the struggles of people all over the world as you spoke about, whether it's Black Lives Matter or LGBTQI rights, the struggle of the Palestinians for in their Indigenous rights to self-determination on their ancestral lands is so connected to our Indigenous here in Australia, but also the Indigenous there in Canada. I've been following what's been happening at those residential churches. What are they up to, about 400 child graves that are dug up now? I mean, it's more
1: than that now. Yeah, these are the the so-called residential schools, which are really more accurately referred to as prisons, as prisons for forced assimilation. And this is is a well-documented settler colonial structure of violence. Uh, We've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada look very closely into it, documented in detail. They talked about these, the existence of these graves. Uh, indigenous communities in what is today called Canada have known about these unmarked graves for decades. They've lived with that knowledge. They have engaged in all sorts of communal healing practices to deal with that reality, but it's still extremely painful, extremely hurtful when they're exposed. I prefer the word exposed as opposed to being discovered. They didn't need to be. They were, this is just a moment when, the, when Canada's foundation is being exposed to the world. And it's not a foundation that exists in the, in the distant past. It's an ongoing foundation. Canada is still very much invested in its settler colonial project. It still has not really moved an inch, in my opinion, from that path, despite some of its claims that it wants to correct, as they call them, the mistakes of the past. These weren't mistakes. These were essential features of the settler colonial projects and, and they are very much ongoing and continuing. I mean, the Canadian government is still, it's still trying to make it more difficult for the survivors of, of these prisons, these so-called residential schools. They're still making it difficult for them to, to, to seek out justice. And I also always like to insist on this because you know, Trudeau will go on diplomatic tours and boast about, oh, Canada is concerned with the truth and reconciliation. It's really critical to underscore that the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission didn't come about because the Canadian government all of a sudden thought this is the right thing to do. They were forced to create the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in a settlement, a legal settlement, that was brought forth by Indigenous communities and Indigenous activists. So it was always the Indigenous communities that are the source of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, both in its erection and in its findings its its report it's incredible report so they're the ones that are driving truth they're the ones that have tried reconciliation or conciliation it's the canadian government that still to this day tries to sort of cloud over the truth by saying this is a dark chapter uh, that that's a clouding over the truth of its uh, of this being a foundation and a continuation of Canadian settler colonialism, and they're not really doing anything in terms of reconciliation. I mean, out of all of the calls to action, 96 in total, I believe, if I have the wrong, the right number, out of those 96, uh, two scholars uh, in twenty in December 2020 said eight of them are being addressed uh, by the Canadian government. So I'm not sold on 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 any of this being a, a serious point of concern for for the Canadian state. And again, pressure is the only way to make the move. And again, it's a long road. It's a difficult road, but there's no other uh, way forward uh, other than to keep up that that kind of pressure and work with transnational and and intersectional solidarities to create that change. So, I mean, there's lots of solidarities between Idle No More, for example, activists for Palestinian liberation, much interaction. I know some of those folks. There is much in common that we share. and, And what we share is our struggle against this behemoth called colonial modernity, which started since at least the 15th century.
0: Absolutely. And I I say that because that connectedness, whether it's the indigenous struggle for rights in, in Canada or here, and also in Palestine, and the only difference between the settler colonialism that occurred In Canada and Australia and New Zealand, Polynesia, etc., and in Palestine, is 150 years. The ethnic cleansing of Palestine, the Nakba, didn't create the vanquishing effect that happened in North America, that happened in Australia, that happened in South America to the indigenous peoples that went unchecked in the 15, 16, 17, 18th century. We're still there. In Australia, we're dealing with the stolen generation, exactly like these forced assimilation churches. It's our duty as citizens to force our elected officials to come. to justice. You talk about Trudeau, I mean, he just exemplifies everything that is sickening about settler colonial societies. You know, he's the pretty white boy with all the education and speaks well and he's gentle. This guy's an arch Zionist. The Jewish Defence League that is a terrorist organisation in the United States roams freely throughout Canada, you know, and Rabbi Kahani that end up forming the, the Kach party that was banned by Israel as being a terrorist organisation that then morphs into Otsma Yehudit, that now is in the Knesset. This is the sort of far-right extremist racist policies that and parties that get their power from the acquiescence and silence of settler-colonialist countries like Australia and Canada. What's it like in Canada today? Really excellent points there. Let me start with this one. Settler
1: colonialism appears in different ways across different spaces. And there are differences between how it's playing out uh, for Palestinians versus how it it is playing out for indigenous communities in what is today called Canada versus how that's playing out in in the United States versus how that's playing out in Australia versus New Zealand. And there's also differences in the different historical eras. So Canadian settler colonialism doesn't look exactly the same way today as it did, let's say 300 or 200 years ago. There are some differences between settler colonialisms and They are at different stages, as you pointed out there, that the American and Canadian-Australian ones started way before the Israeli one. Absolutely, they did. And that therefore creates different dynamics. So I'm all for these kinds of robust comparisons. But I just want to stress to the audience that just because there are differences doesn't mean that Israel is therefore not a settler colony. And I know you weren't saying that at all, Nasser, but that's a talking point that's out there. So I just kind of wanted to, to bring that back to the as well. One of the reasons why I wrote that article is to show that the sort of Zionist scholarship that tries to make the case that Israel is not a settler colony because it doesn't look exactly like the U.S. is absolutely, I think, a very weak argument that does not withstand close scrutiny. It actually shows a fundamental misunderstanding by these scholars of decolonial theory, indigenous theory, settler colonial theory, post-colonial theory. And I guess it's not a surprise that settler colonists wouldn't understand those theories. But but that's a really critical point to to highlight, that, that much of the talking points you hear in public discourse about why Israel is not an apartheid state or not a settler colony are not strong academic arguments. And I wanted to kind of show that a little bit in that piece. Obviously, I can't go into all the details, but they really do operate on a very crude and weak understanding of those theoretical paradigms. And yes, absolutely, we can talk about, you mentioned the point about, for example, statistically speaking, there are still, there are more Palestinians still living under Israeli settler colonial domination than let's say, Indigenous people living under Australian settler colonial domination or Indigenous people living under Canadian settler colonial domination. We can't underestimate here the role of germs as well. Germs that were many times intentionally spread into Indigenous communities in in Turtle Island, but that severely weakened Indigenous communities and their ability to resist the onslaught of settler colonial conquest. It certainly was a huge factor in, in, in that process. But it also, as I also wrote in another piece, earlier this year, back in February. This doesn't mean that we've seen the last of the Nakba. The Nakba in 1948 was certainly one of the most horrific experiences in Palestinian history. And it is very much ongoing until today. We, we see it in the ethnic cleansing that is still ongoing across the land of historic Palestine. But I also argued in a piece back in February in Al Jazeera that this doesn't mean that we won't see another Nakba. In fact, we heard Israeli settlers in May caught on video during their flag day march uh, saying, Hey, Nakba number two is coming up. The discourse in Israel within civil society, not just the extremist politicians, it's entered into the Knesset in, in a much more pronounced way than people sometimes admit. And it's certainly, again, prevalent. It's becoming even more prevalent in Israeli civil society that it's okay to expel and on a mass scale the remaining Palestinians in order to create the land of what they call greater Israel, where no Palestinians remain, or a small minority, 20 to 30% remain. So that's still the path that Israeli politics is still going on. We can't forget that prior to 1948, uh, many Zionist leaders did want to take the whole piece of land, but they just said it wasn't practical, it wasn't possible. And that led them to just take what they are able to take at that time. But that doesn't mean that they were satisfied with that. They always call, you know, there are quotes from Zionist leaders saying, we'll, we'll do it stage by stage. I think I'd have to double check, but I I believe David Ben-Gurion is uh, used that term stage by stage. If not him, then it was another uh, prominent Zionist leader. This story is still ongoing of, of, of mass expulsion. We don't know that we've seen the last one. And and that's why we need to have a strong uh, sense of urgency in addressing this issue, because it's, it's not stagnant. It is, we all know that, that famous map where the Palestinian land, it's its ever shrinking, you know, that hasn't stopped. There still could be more maps that are even worse. So I just wanted to kind of point that out. And, and again, that also shows that the foundation of the Israeli state is very much a settler colonial one, because it is still ongoing in its project of eliminating the, la- the native and replacing them with settlers. That has not stopped. And so when it comes to Canada and, and Trudeau, I think you labeled him exactly right. He is very much a Zionist and, you know, seems to me an ideologically committed Zionist. And Canada, on the whole, sometimes will speak a good good game, as it were. But in practice, Canadian foreign policy has for a long time been clearly aligned with Israeli state interests. And with American imperial interests. And those are all interconnected. These kinds of states do share, along with European states, they do share that colonial foundation, that settler colonial foundation, that imperial foundation, that foundation of colonial modernity. It is a foundation that has been devastating to the majority of the world's population. I don't need to tell. Indigenous people, black people, (laughs) colonized people from across the world. I don't need to tell them about the ugliness of colonial modernity. They all know it. They all seen it. They all
0: lived it. They all know it and have all lived it. I heard something interesting lately. It was actually on my Twitter feed. She said one of the terms we use when you were trying to round us up in a group noun, if you will, was you know perhaps people of color. We should actually start, as people of color, start to refer to ourselves as the. People of the global majority. So the people of the global majority are very aware of the evils of colonialism and of Western imperialism and U.S. hegemony. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So as a member of the people of the global majority, you yourself, and we talk about the ongoing Nakba and there's, you know, whether it was Netanyahu just before the last election or today Naftali Bennett, there's no question annexation is happening and the creeping ongoing slow Nakba is continuing and just... Making it, I think, that much easier in our job to identify Israel as apartheid, when that annexation occurs or the creeping annexation of the settler, the increased settlements, is to say to people, look, we represent now more than 50% of the people on the land, yet are denied the vote. There's only one word for that. Two people, two sets of laws. That's apartheid. We've got the court case for the Sheikh Jarrah families That's happening on the 2nd of August. The Palestinians have got no expectations of fair right or hearing in the colonial courts of Israel. Absolutely
1: not. Justice will never be brought to the the Palestinians through an Israeli court, simple as that.
0: We had two years ago, the very first in Australia, a black Palestine solidarity conference was at Melbourne University was run over three days. It was chaired by Professor Gary Foley, who's a an Indigenous activist and a friend of Palestine for 50 years. And we had people come from all over the world give presentations on the interconnectedness of our struggles. You spoke earlier about that there in Canada. At what stage of organization is it? Is it increasingly growing? I mean, we've had the Black Lives Matter movement in America actually fully adopt the BDS platform and the whole kit and caboodle? Where are you at in Canada?
1: Very good question. And I think Canada, like other places like Australia, like the United States, uh, there are some shifts. There are some shifts in the discourse. Uh, the, the, the ties to BLM are there. The ties to Idle No More are there. The ties to some labor uh, organizing is there. The tie to LGBTQ plus groups are, is there. Um, so so that, that's there. That's building last night, actually, we had uh, the first ever uh, we call it it was called the Palestine Forum. It was put on by a coalition of Palestinian organizations. Uh, we had a, a member of parliament from the National Democratic Party uh, speak at it. Uh, he was fantastic. Uh, there, there, there was a lot of community organizations that came together. Good uh, uh, turnout, good attendance. And yes, I mean, I, I noticed in my own personal interactions, more intersectionality, more awareness happening of more awareness of what's happening in Palestine, which is by the way, I mean, in no small part, the change in the discourse in places like Australia, Canada, the US it has come from the work of Palestinian uh, activists and journalists in Palestine. They're the ones that drove that change in narrative. Back in, in May and June, when Gaza was being inhumanely and uh, viciously attacked and bombed, as well as uh, the violence uh, of these mobs that were going around in '48 Palestine, uh, looting and killing and and beating and and of course all the forced evictions and the in the Israeli occupation in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, Israel and the propaganda machine in in North America and Europe was. You know, kicking into gear and doing their their same old talking points. Israel has the right to defend itself. Blah 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 blah. And these activists and journalists on the ground were were sent. You know, they took over social media. I mean, they just said, okay, yeah, there's that talking point, and here's the video of the reality. <laughs> and people just weren't buying it anymore. They weren't buying the talking points anymore. They were they were looking at the pictures and going, this is not at all matching with this state discourse, something, something is up here. And I also think that the reason why people were taking that that next step is also due to the space that especially Black Lives Matter created the year before that. Black Lives Matter made enormous inroads into public discourse in 2020. And it brought awareness of uh, the ways in which racialized people are killed and maimed and tortured and beaten and censored and intimidated and harassed while no one is looking and no one is caring. Uh, And it brought that realization really to the surface and it it entered I think people's minds and that played that to me I mean that must have played a role in how people saw the Palestinian struggle and thought well another racialized group being killed tortured beaten uh, censored intimidated and and it's all under the veneer of of lies and myth just like BLM (laughs) was telling us is the is the black experience in in the U.S. and Canada and Australia and many other places so so I, I I think I think we are creating spaces for each other. And I know, you know, I've seen many, many tweets and statements by Black activists, by Indigenous activists, saying things like, you know, basically drawing inspiration from the courage of, of the Palestinian uh, resistance for their own uh, resistance. So so there's all sorts of connections on those on those levels that don't always necessarily involve people talking to each other, although that happens and that's very important. But uh, just this, just drawing inspiration from each other in these indirect ways plays a huge role. And then there's also more practical things. like the way that we're Palestinians, we're pointing out how we're being censored by the media, how we're being how our stories are not making it to the surface, and all of those kinds of processes in, within the media and how that works. You know, when we reveal that about about how the media works to censor Palestine, Certainly BLM activists are looking, indigenous activists are looking, other activists are looking and going, Kashmiri activists are looking and going, right, that's what they do to us too. Uh, uh, what, can we, what can we learn from that, right? So, so there's, that's another important way in which there are these intersectionalities insofar as power structures respond to us in very similar ways. And we can take hints from each other on how to deal with that. So, so that's a really a critical point. But we need to move, you know, we need to A... Keep that momentum going. So I think in Canada, that's the next big thing is to keep the momentum going and expand it. So I'm not quite personally, I'm not quite satisfied with where we at. Uh, OK, so we've done some advances we, we could be better. Uh, more people should be talking about Palestine. More people should be less afraid to speak up. Um, and we need to take it to the next step and, and move from discourse change to policy change. Um, that has to be the end goal here. I'm not satisfied with a politician giving me a better statement on Palestine. I want policy action. This is why I absolutely loved our event last night. The the, the, the elected official, Mr. Uh, Matthew Green, gave specific policy goals. And I don't know that he'll be successful. He knows that the odds are against them, but he's trying. And that's what we want uh, politicians to do. We want them to name specific policy goals that will put pressure on Israel. That's absolutely necessary without pressure on israel they will never change their behavior all they are all they've heard since may is keep doing what you're doing that's what they've heard they haven't so you know they'll go okay some of the some of the statements from foreign diplomats have been a bit harsher this time than they were last time but we can live with that
0: that's a great way to finish mark thanks so very much uh, brother for that and the website for academics listening is Censia, U-O-F-T. So Censia, U-O-F-T, dot C-A. I'll put that link in the podcast as well. So if there are any academics can go on, sign on there. It's a wonderful website. Be sure to support that work. And Dr. Mark Mohanad-Ayesh, thanks so very much for joining us. And hopefully we get to speak and see you soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That was the incredible Dr. Mark Mohanad-Ayesh an incredible Palestinian academic. I'm sure you'll agree. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share the podcast, tell your friends, and remember there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.